This is our first ever live show at CapeCon 2023. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. This is a little bit different episode. This is our very first live show ever uh, at CapeCon 2023, mm-hmm. Cape Girardeau, Missouri. We're doing our show. Uh, hopefully some of our fans are tuning in from around the, the world that, that we have here because <laughs> uh, most of our fans don't live in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. No. In fact, almost none of them do, it turns as it as it would turn out. Uh, but yeah, so we're doing our first live show here. We're going to get right into it. We're doing a little bit of a special episode. Before we get to that, we just wanted to introduce ourselves. If this is somebody's first episode, because this is going to be a bit of a primer on kind of what we do on the podcast. Uh, so Katie, why don't you go ahead and tell the people who you are? <laughs> well, my name's Katie. Um, I am the book person of our, our dynamic duo. Uh, I have a literature degree. I have a professional writing degree. Um, I used to teach English comp uh, at SEMO right down the road. And now I work in marketing as a content creator and a social media manager. And I co-host a podcast, if that's not the most millennial thing you've ever heard in your life. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, so my name is Brian. Uh, I am the movie half of our podcast. I have a film degree from also from Southeast Missouri State, just down the road here. Uh, I've worked in video production for over a decade now in multiple different capacities, uh, primarily as a writer, director, and editor, and cinematographer. So that's a little bit of my background. I have more of a movie background. Katie has more of a book literature background, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where the show came from. The premise of our show It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) Yeah, so our show is essentially based around that common phrase that you hear really often about book adaptations, right? Oh, the book was so much better than the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So we decided that we wanted to see how often that was true and if we could find the times when the movie is actually better than the book. Which is more often than you think. We'll get to the actual numbers here in just a second. Well, actually, if we can find the numbers, because we don't we don't have our PowerPoint. But uh, so a normal episode of the show, which this is not a normal episode of the show. The normal episode of the show focuses on just one film, one book, uh, or one film based on one book. Uh, and generally, Katie will read the book. I will not. Uh, and then we'll both watch the film. Uh, we do occasionally switch where I will read and she will not. And we'll both watch. It just kind of depends on what the book is, if it's something that's more my interest or whatever. And then over the course of the episode, we go through the film. Uh, and the, and the book kind of frame by frame, page by page, break it all down, all the differences, all the similarities, and most importantly, try to decide if the changes that were made made the film better or worse. Uh, ultimately, we pick a winner and declare that either the book or the film was better. Uh, so we've done, how many episodes have we done? We've here? done 158 it's a lot episodes, of episodes of this been doing show. This for like five years now. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've covered everything from sci-fi to romance uh, to classic lit and graphic novels. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there are many genres that we haven't. I truly at this don't point. think at this point that there's anything that we haven't done. I think we've really hit everything at this point. But tonight, like we said, this is a little bit of a different special episode. We're going to be doing something a little different. Uh, just for CapeCon, we're going to be revealing and discussing our list of the five best and worst adaptations of all time, or, or at least the ones that we've covered so far, because obviously we haven't done everything. <laughs> uh, but we have done 158 episodes. And we don't, what was the number breakdown before we get into this? It was like 80. Our number so breakdown far. so far. Our fans will be interested to hear this because we've never actually done this on the podcast. So it's 158 <laughs> episodes, but 157 movies. Yes. Because we did The Princess Bride twice. Yeah. Because we liked it so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, so out of those, 
80 times, mm -hmm. the book has been better. Yes. 66 times, the, the movie film. has been better. Right. The movie has been better. And there were 11 times when we either couldn't decide or we both read the book and disagreed. Yeah, exactly. So, so far, the book has one is winning by a little bit. It's like yeah. 50 to 40. Not, not by as wide of a margin as you would tend to think. Yeah, you would Based think. on like cultural conversations around. Yeah movie adaptations exactly but regardless of whether we ultimately choose the book or the movie it, usually it doesn't mean that we think the other one was bad usually sometimes. usually yeah but usually and, they're both bad <laughs> if one of them's bad they're usually both bad usually. Um, but i would say most of the adaptations that we discuss we actually enjoy both yeah yeah, almost all. We're, we're pretty mm -hmm. positive people. We tend to like most <laughs> things, generally speaking. So it is pretty common that we we enjoy both the book and the movie. But tonight we're going to discuss uh, five of them that we did not like and five of them that we mm -hmm. really love. So let's get right into it and start with number five of the worst of the worst. It is The Black Cauldron, The Chronicles of Prydain. Katie, go. <laughs> <laughs> so The Black Cauldron is often remembered as... The movie that almost killed Disney Animation. Yes, uh, absolutely. Infamous for almost taking out Disney Animation. Yeah. It was not exactly a hit. Now, the movie on its own, you thought was not as bad as its reputation might make you think. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was great, but uh, it, it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. But then from my perspective, having read the books, things started to get a little rough yes. looking at it as an adaptation. So The Black Cauldron is actually adapted from two books out of a five-book series, yes. which is called, like you said, The Chronicles of Prydain. Yeah. Um, and essentially what the movie does is take the first half of book one, uh, which is called The Book of Three, and then smash it together with the second half of book two, mm. which is called The Black Cauldron. Yes. And now, as you can imagine, this resulted in a little bit of a mess. Uh, the story is kind of hacked to bits. Mm. It's really truncated to the point that you almost can't tell what's going on yeah. at certain points. Um, it kind of moves at like a breakneck pace. So there's really no time for really much needed elements um, mm. like character arcs yeah. and relationship growth between characters. And the world building, which was incredible in the books, yeah. really suffered. And a lot of great characters ended up hitting the cutting room floor. Yeah, my biggest problem with it, I remember when we were watching, was that I felt like the characters did not have enough time. I just could, couldn't really care about any, any yeah. of the characters because there's just like, there's too many of them kind of a little bit. And more than that, just nobody had enough time because the plot had to get done in like 80 <laughs> minutes. Yes. So we did not have enough time to characterize people. Yeah. Now the, the main problem in my opinion, is that an 80 to 90 minute children's film was just fundamentally the wrong medium yeah. for this adaptation. The Chronicles of Prydain deserves to be adapted as big budget prestige television. And that, that is a hill I'm willing to die as on. As everything does. It is, it's say. a fantastic series and it, it deserves a better adaptation than it got. Yes, we're, we're hoping one day that will happen. I don't think there are any current rumors of that happening, but you never know. So uh, let's get now to number five in the best category. We're going to start with Legally Blonde. Now, if you didn't know Legally Blonde was a book, you are in good company. I'll say you're not alone because I had no idea. Neither did we. Yeah. Um, and, and it's honestly, it's not a terrible book, but 
it's not great either. Yeah. Uh, it definitely has some first-time author issues where you can tell that the author just hasn't been writing for very long. Yeah. And its plot is kind of meandering, mm -hmm. uh, wanders here and there, and we do a lot of side quests. <laughs> yes. And the movie really reigns that into a much more concise narrative. Uh, there's a lot of cutting and condensing in a way that works really well. For example, the movie is much quicker to have Elle realize that Warner isn't worth her time, yeah. which allows us to then focus on more interesting and engaging plot points and character arcs. Mm -hmm. uh, that movie also takes a much more sincere and positive approach to its treatment and portrayal of its female characters, um, particularly for the time period. Yeah, that was a big thing that really stuck out to both of us. Yeah, and there are a lot of kind of easy targets mm -hmm. in this movie, right? There's a lot of sorority girls. We've got, like, the dumb blonde stereotype. Mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer Coolidge's character. Jennifer Coolidge playing uh, Jennifer Coolidge, basically. Yes, her character, Paulette, <laughs> it, she's essentially trailer trash, yeah. the way that she's portrayed. And then Selma Blair's character, Vivian, is kind of like a frigid shrew stereotype yes. at yeah. first. But the movie's approach to all of these characters is overall very kind and very nuanced. Yeah, it really stuck out to me that they're like, especially because that was one of the things that that stuck out to me was how well the movie had aged. The fact that it like for the time period, because when did this come? It's like, like early 2000, 2004, yeah. I think. It's like I right say. in the period where these kind of movies are just like you watch them today and you're like, oh, no, <laughs> this is the worst. <laughs> it's like has aged so terribly. Uh, but that was not the case with this one. Like the, the the feminism in the movie is like way ahead of its time. I don't want to say way ahead of its yeah. time, but it's four four movies of that time right. period. It's ahead. It's, of its, it's time. ahead of its time, and it did. That was something else that really struck us about that movie, and which I don't remember. Had you ever seen it? I had not, before no. we did it, and mm -hmm. I I had seen it, but it had been a very long time yeah. since I'd watched it, and we were both struck by how the film really offered meaningful and very timely you know, for the time period, mm -hmm. commentary on like feminism and the idea of women supporting women and women working in male-dominated careers. And a lot of that pre commentary was not really present in the book. Which is interesting. I, that surprised me that it wasn't something that they pulled really from the book. Uh, but I can't remember who wrote that screenplay now, but it was somebody, wasn't it? Was it the woman who wrote or created uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or something like that? I think it might have been. Did I she don't work on that? Know. I can't remember now. I may be making that up entirely, so never mind. But she also wrote, I can't remember her name. She followed us on Instagram. Yes. Like after, after we, we did, covered after we movie. covered this movie. So I like which to think really she cool. listened to the episode. Um, she probably didn't. She probably just saw posting about it on Instagram. But I believe us. she also wrote um, Whip It and That's what it was. Um, That's 10 what Things it was. I Hate About You. That's who, yes. Sorry. I was thinking, I think there was some other movie we did that was, yeah, yeah. but I think you're right. That was not that. Uh, not that writer. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing that really stuck out to me about uh, <laughs> Legally Blonde is that it really embraced like a positivity and it celebrates positivity in a way that was kind of antithetical to movies of that time. Yes. Of, again, of the early 2000s, late 90s. Everything was like super cynical and nihilistic. Like that mm -hmm. was what comedy was in that time period. Uh, but this movie, like, was literally the polar opposite, yeah, which is very sincere. Yeah, it, it reminds me of something more like, you know, because the, the answer to that in more recent, like, television and stuff is stuff like Parks and Rec a little. And, and those kind of shows that really lean into the positivity. And this was a movie doing that, you know, 10 years before yeah. those other shows <laughs> kind of came around to that, which was really impressive uh, and made for a great adaptation. Uh, but that brings us to number four on our worst list, which is Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. I 
I cannot express to you. We saw this in the theaters. Yes. And I think we actually saw it before we started doing this show. Yes. And then had to go back and do it for the show because I don't know if I've ever left a movie theater in such a frothing rage. You were not happy. <laughs> when we saw this movie. You were movie. not happy. Um, now, we cover a lot of movies on this show that are able to capture the complex and interesting world building mm-hmm. yeah. of their books. But Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children was not one of them. Apparently not. Um, and part of the problem is that the plot of the book leans so heavily on the audience being able to understand the many detailed layers yeah. of the world building. And there's a lot of kind of like new concepts. Mm-hmm. So you're not leaning on like a cultural awareness of things like you can with something like Lord of the Rings right. or yeah. even Harry Potter. This has a lot of like new concepts yeah. in it. So and it's you, weird. yeah, <laughs> and they are weird. Yeah. You know, the audience has to come and you have to know what peculiars are. You have to know what hologhasts are. You have to understand how the time loops work. You have to get a feel for this entire alternate history mm-hmm. that this story introduces. And the consequence of trying to cram all of that into a two-hour runtime is a movie that feels disjointed and rushed. Yeah. And I, I can't remember how much we did. This was one of our very early episodes. This was like within our first 10 episodes. Yeah. So that I was like say. 2014. No, it was not that long no, ago. It was like 2017. 2017. It feels like a decade ago at this point. But yeah, it was like around five years ago. So I don't even remember how much I liked it. I think I like, I enjoyed the movie more than you did, but I don't think I liked it. Was my memory like vaguely? I can't recall. Um, but yeah, I, real quick, but while we're here, we have some people in the, in the chat. We got, uh, Matilda, Amanda, and Steve right now, at least all in the chat. If you are in the chat watching, leave a little, we'll, we'll say hi, hi. to you. <laughs> so thanks for joining us. Uh, Matilda said it's like a, it's like a little Patreon meetup just for, <laughs> just for our patrons. Um, are you, were, yeah, just go ahead. Okay, so Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children is also a Tim Burton joint. Yeah, very much so. And Listen, I'm a spooky kid. <laughs> I can generally get on board with the Tim Burton aesthetic. Right. But I think it is fair to say that his movies often value style over substance. When his worst movies do, yes. They, they rely on, they try to yes, get by on style on over style. substance. And, and unfortunately, yeah. this movie just needed way more substance yeah. than it got. Yeah, I would agree. Um, And speaking of that Tim Burton style, one of the things that I think infuriated me the most about this adaptation was the number that that style did on the heroine of the book, Emma. So in the book, she has fire-based superpowers and a personality to match. Mm -hmm. But Tim Burton heroines have a certain look. And a certain vibe. Yes. They're doe-eyed. They're long-limbed waifs <laughs> that are, are nothing if not delicately feminine. Yes. Um, so in the process of making this Burton into a Tim Burton movie with a capital M, we lost everything that makes the female protagonist interesting. And instead of fire powers, she yeah. has the power of floating. Yes. Not flying. Not flying. Not flying. Floating. Floating. Which is a one heck of a superpower. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little disappointing. Um, all right, but that's it for number four on our worst list. Let's get to number four on the best list, and that is Stardust. 
This is my favorite movie. It's Katie's favorite movie. <laughs> um, now, we don't always like tonal shifts in adaptations. Um, when the book has like a one a a wildly specific different tone, tone and then the, the movie yeah. has kind of a, a, yeah, a wildly different tone. But Stardust is the exception to that rule. So the book is an adult fairy tale. It's dark. It's gritty. It's, it's adult with a capital A. The movie keeps a lot of the book's really interesting and unique world building, mm -hmm. but it takes an overall more lighthearted and romantic approach to the story and the characters. So what we end up with is a classic action-adventure fantasy romance. Yes. We get a swashbuckler. A swashbuckler, and which it, we... We love a swashbuckler. We're a sucker for a swashbuckler. Like some of our favorite movies. <laughs> well, literally your favorite movie. Yes. And maybe my favorite movie. Close in the top three or four, so... Um, the movie also bumps the humor elements of the story, bumps those up. Um, so w we get, like, the peanut section Greek chorus of mm -hmm. dead princes in the background, as well as Robert De Niro's take on the fabulous Captain Shakespeare. That was a surprise. I was not expecting <laughs> De Niro to come out playing in a fet captain that yes. was just not a thing that I ever expected. And it was a delightful surprise. And the, the movie handles it really well. Like something that could have ended up aging poorly. Yes. I it think actually, the, yeah. the movie handles yeah. it well. You're right. I, it, it, that is another one of those where, yeah, you, that could have easily, it could easily been, a, been really bad a place. That was but, not great, but it could, but instead good. it's very charming and very sincere. Yes. The movie also makes good changes to the book's ending. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, uh, the book's ending is a little bit anticlimactic in the way that traditional folk tales often are. Yeah, the story kind of just ends, just kind of peters, just out. kind of peters out. Um, the movie, on the other hand, gives us like Hollywood grand finale yes, which you have finish. Have, yes, we get multiple sword fights. We get gruesome villain deaths. We even get like a voodoo doll controlled zombie yeah, sword that was fight. Wild. The end of the movie it's is crazy. is crazy yeah. in the best way. Yes. Uh, and by the way, uh, Katie and I actually got engaged on the podcast at the beginning of that episode. <laughs> so if you haven't. We did. You can actually go back and listen to that episode. And the beginning of it uh, is me proposing to Katie. So and and all of the confusion in my voice because I had no idea you were doing that. Yes. Uh, Steve apparently just commented and said he thinks he knows what number one is. I'm interested if he thinks he knows the number one best or the number one worst. And if so, I would need you to leave it here. I would need you to... <laughs> <laughs> to put your money where your mouth is, make that prediction right there in the comments uh, and let us know because we'll, we'll – otherwise, you're just saying you know what it is and we don't know for sure that you do. <laughs> hey, Madison just dumped in. Hey, Madison. Thanks for joining. <laughs> all right, Katie. It's time to talk about now our number three worst adaptation of all time or at least that we've seen so far. Cat in the Hat with Michael Myers. What a nightmare this is. Oh. Um, so hot off the success of Jim Carrey's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, yes. Universal got a brilliant idea. They decided we're going to try and replicate that success with a different funny man <laughs> by letting Mike Myers yeah. run around in an absolutely terrifying cat suit making off-color jokes that's for two movie. hours. Yeah, that's that's And that's, that's what the movie is. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. <laughs> uh, the problems with the 2003 live-action adaptation of The Cat in the Hat are truly legion. Yes. Uh, they range from 
lazy use of character stereotypes to a, a woeful misunderstanding of Susian visual style to a plot that just couldn't stop raising its own stakes. Yes. But the main issue at the heart of it all, <laughs> the, the burning molten center of the shitpost of a movie is Mike Myers' cat. Yes. He is completely obnoxious. His jokes are not funny and they have aged like milk. Yes. And he doesn't manage to be endearing at the center of that like no. Jim Carrey did with the yes. Grinch. Yes. Jim Carrey has a, there's an extra layer underneath Jim Carrey's Grinch and yeah. like a softness that makes that character work in that movie even though it's not my favorite like it's a I, I that movie I think has a lot of mixed feelings amongst people. It's got some highs and lows. Yeah, and I I overall like the the Jim Carrey Grinch but it, he you know, he's doing something a lot more layered and interesting than Mike Myers is doing. With, <laughs> now, to be fair, it's also a more interesting character. The cat that, yes, is just... that's true. To give a little bit of the credit, cat the cat is, is, just, is just kind of chaos and comment. Yes, exactly, which, you know, I guess he kind of did that, but it doesn't make for an interesting character no. necessarily and in a, an hour and, and, and a half yeah, long movie. No, it does not make for an interesting full-length feature film. Yeah. And what's really frustrating to me about that movie is that it actually isn't completely devoid of good ideas like they, really? they uh, i don't remember any, so but they, they introduce this conceit of the two kids needing to adjust their methods of having fun that's to right be, like to be to have healthy fun instead of destructive fun, yes yes yes, yes. which could have been a really interesting and a very worthy thematic addition to the original text that yeah. could have worked really well with the original text but it's just impossible to like anything about this film when you have Mike Myers in a cat costume screaming, oh, yeah, yeah every he, five seconds. I don't know why they decided he needed to be the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> that was a weird I'm choice. surprised Kool-Aid did come for them. It, it, is, it is bordering on copyright infringement <laughs> <laughs> at some point, I would argue. But absolutely. All right. Uh, let's get to now our number three best adaptation of all time or that we've seen so far the lord of the rings trilogy i mean no surprises no surprises there I, I everything else on our list is like a singular book movie yes adaptation. this is the only one that's like the series we, we had to make an exception for yes. lord of the rings because the entire trilogy is a master class on how to adapt a book into a film i, I would argue yes um so the film's made some really great edits mm -hmm. uh, while being overall faithful to Tolkien's world and vision. And that, that is yeah. not an easy line to walk. No, it really, and you know, there's people that are, that are upset about some of the things that were cut. You know, I, I will, I will go to war for Tom Bombadil like, <laughs> like many others, but uh, I understand why it was right. cut. I, get I understand it. I why, get it. you know, I some of it. that stuff was removed. <laughs> um, you know, there, I, I will say, I do think the scouring of the Shire probably should have, is that what it's called? Right? Yeah. It's been so long. Uh, <laughs> that, I think that probably has a, uh, a kind of a, um, an important thematic resonance that could, mm -hmm. would have been nice to keep in the film. But other than that, I also understand why they got rid of that. But I think that was maybe the one that was like the hardest to lose. But overall, I thought just Peter Jackson and the the other you know people who helped adapt that, I think, kind of made the perfect choices on what to keep and what to get rid of yeah. and what to kind of flesh out. Because some of that stuff and some of the characters <laughs> in particular are just – you know, appendices characters that ended up becoming <laughs> right. full-fledged characters in his, <laughs> in his films. 
Uh, and it's also another thing that we did not like about the books that much that luckily, in our opinion, at least that the film did a little bit better, is that I'm not a big fan of all the music, all the songs in the books. I hate reading songs. Like, yeah. I really don't like reading songs, especially in Lord of the Rings for some reason. There's some okay ones, but in general, I'm just like, can we get you to know, you're I, writing more and not? They're, <laughs> they're thematically resonant. Yes. Which is good. But they are kind of just a little bit of a, a drag to read. It, it slows the pacing down. It slows the pacing down. I, my big problem that I always have with with songs in books is that I don't know what tune to read them. Like, like yeah. in my head, I'm trying to imagine <laughs> like what tune this is supposed to be to, and so I'm like trying. I have to read them like a million times because like I'm reading through and I'm like, well, that okay, but that rhythm doesn't make sense. So it's just. I don't like reading songs. If it was a song, if I was doing the on of uh, like the audio version of the book and mm-hmm. it was just sung, I think I would be okay with it. Like if there was like actual music and it was sung or something, I think I'd be fine with it. But I, I just don't like reading songs. Mm-hmm. Don't like. I it. might still fast forward through it. In contrast, though, uh, the film score is just perfection from beginning to end. I I don't know if there's a better film. Uh, there are, but there there's but, it's, but it's up in the up pantheon it's of the best film scores of the last you know twenty thirty years for sure. It's fantastic. So. Uh, another thing about the Lord of the Rings trilogy mm-hmm. is how fully committed to the aesthetic the production oh, yeah. was. And it really makes Middle Earth feel like a real lived-in place. Yes, like it, the the sets and the props, like what a workshop did such a good job on everything. It feels so completely real. And it's really in contrast. We've only done the first movie in the uh what is the uh we did the first we did the first two chronicles of narnia the first we two? did yes we did uh lion the witch in the wardrobe and we did prince caspian we have not done prince we caspian. have absolutely done prince caspian that's the one with the boat no we have not... that's voyage of the john treader we have not done prince Caspian. is it part of the first movie no we have not done two movies of I I'm absolutely positive not done. that we have done. We Prince only Caspian. did Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. It doesn't matter. I'll just continue. If you can find it, it was that's right fine, there. What we've done it. That it had Ben Barnes in it. That has left. It my was brain. not a very memorable movie. That's fine. wild. Okay. Anyways, moving on. Anyway, the point the point to that was is that uh, I was going to say compared <laughs> to right. Compared to the Chronicles of Narnia, where you know the the sets look good, yes, they don't they don't they look, look fine. They look fine. They, yeah. they don't look bad, but they don't look ancient and lived yes. in. Yes, that was my that big thing. Lord Everything's of the Rings too clean, does, which yeah. I think it's po- kind of in- it's intentional, but it just the the cleanliness of everything and it just all looks kind of like plastic and fake. Even when mm-hmm. it looks good, it just doesn't look lived in in the same way that the Lord of the Rings universe does in the films, which. I, you know, it, it just really, it's one of those things that kept me from really like diving into the yeah um, Chronicles of Narnia films. It's one of the, one of several things, but that was one of the things. I really I have a belief that you have to get into the Chronicles of Narnia as a child. As like a little, <laughs> a little, little yes. wee lad. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's not what I read as a kid. So. <laughs> no, but the other thing um, with like the overall aesthetic and the look of the Lord of the Rings movies is... And, and this is kind of in sharp contrast to a lot of movies that we have now yeah. is how judicious they were in the use of CG tech that was available at the yes. time and using it to enhance the practical effects instead of relying on it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. The CG in that movie has aged like pretty much perfectly, which is pretty impressive considering yeah. 
you know, it came out in 2001 <laughs> or the first one came out in 2001 or 2000. I can't remember the exact year, but yeah. Um, also a movie with straight up perfect casting across the board. Yes. I like, literally, not a single thing I would change. I, I can't think of a, a single role that I would recast in that series yeah. at all. Like at all. Like I, I truly, I was trying to think of this when we were doing these notes. I was like, is there a single, cause it, almost any other movie that's like an adaptation of something I really like. There's like usually at least one. I'm like, ah, I'm not a big fan. I don't yeah. think there's a single one. And now I'm sure if we sat and thought about it, we could come up with other actors that we think would could, do, all, yeah, could would also fine, do yeah. a good job. But I don't think there's anybody that I would like swap out. No, there's no easy substitutions. That's no. for sure. Absolutely. Um, and to speak a little bit more to the book side of things mm-hmm. for a minute here, something that often comes up on our show is how movies are frequently much more accessible than the books are. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. Yeah, and and I think that one of the strengths of this film series is how accessible it makes the stories. Yes. Uh, even for an avid reader, Lord of the Rings is a challenge. It can be. It, I mean, they're dense. Yeah. They're they're pretty dense, and they're more than anything. I think the thing that really like sticks to me about or sticks out to me about them is they're like they're kind of boring. I love yeah. them, but they're kind of boring. They're they're kind of you know there's there's a lot of extended description of trees. <laughs> yeah, and which is fine. You know, you I know, like trees as much as the next person, but <laughs> not as much as J.R.R. Tolkien does. Yes. nobody likes trees as much as him. Yeah. Um, but the movies are just much more digestible yeah. while, again, staying about as close to the spirit of the books as an adaptation can hope to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, plus, we get that great scene in uh, <laughs> Two Towers where Aragorn dramatically throws open both of the doors at Helm's Deep. And that's, that's a good scene. That's a good scene. That's a good scene. It's a good scene. It's a very good scene. <laughs> All right, that brings us to our number two worst film or worst adaptation of all time, Ella Enchanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Katie has a lot to say about this one. I had a lot of thoughts about Ella Enchanted. Yeah. Um, first off, there has never been a movie more ruined by the mere existence of another movie oh my gosh. than Ella Enchanted was by Shrek. It's crazy. And, and now there are a few key elements that Ella Enchanted attempted to utilize. They should sue Shrek <laughs> for ruining their movie without even trying to. Um, uh, all of these were not invented by the Shrek franchise, no, no, but no, they no, were no. they were popularized yeah. by Shrek during the early 2000s, um, namely the use of anachronism. Yes. Did I say it right this Anachroni- time? Uh, did you Anachronism. Say it, did you say it wrong in the episode or something? I did. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, I, yes, you said it right. Uh, the u- use of anachronism as world building. So, yes. you know, uh, one example from, I had to look up a couple examples from uh, the Shrek franchise. They have, uh, when they go to the kingdom of far, far away, there's a coffee shop called Farbucks. Yes. Instead of Starbucks. I know. Um, So, you know, you have this use of anachronism, right? Things that are out of their time. Yeah. And you use that as world building. And boy, did Ella Enchanted. Yes. It, it, they, they used it way too much. It's, it's truly infuriating and truly just, it's look, I like Shrek. I like Shrek too. I think Shrek's at least the first one. I haven't seen the other ones in a long time because we did the first one on the podcast. (laughs) 
because it's based it, on a kid's book. Yes, yeah. it's based on a picture so we book. Did the, we did the first one on the podcast uh, several years ago. but uh, So I like the first Shrek, but man, it, it Shrek working as well as it does is kind of a miracle, was kind of a miracle. Trying to replicate that is like a true act of hubris, and uh, Ella yeah. Enchanted should be ashamed. Uh, uh, <laughs> Ella Enchanted ashamed. impaled itself on its own sword. Yes. Um, another thing that they do that they stole from Shrek is uh, ending the movie with a big song and dance number set to yes. the cover of a pop song. Absolutely. Um, the movie even goes so far as to add that, like a Lord Farquaad esque villain that wasn't in the book, yeah, and was also completely unnecessary to the story. Yes, just just there for set dressing, just there to be there um, because they felt there's like they even that. I don't even I don't remember if we talked about this in the original episode or not, but there's even a scene where Ella does like kung fu out of nowhere. Yes, no, I think I brought like, that up because like, that was very much like, like the what, uh, Princess Fiona, Fiona does, does in Shrek, where she does the Matrix stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and and now listen. <laughs> This movie might stand on its own okay. I'll never know because the book has been one of my well, favorites since I was a preteen. I will say Steve just said that El Enchanted is tough for him because he liked the movie uh, except for the ending, except for the dance number. So The dance number is pretty bad. I don't know. It's, but I, 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 I assume, I he, like I assume Steve hadn't read the book, so he's just, you know, he's just voicing his opinions on the film. Um. But the movie, the movie, in my opinion, just does such a massive disservice to its characters and to the relationships between characters. Um, Ella is a very watered down version of the smart, independent heroine that we get in the book. Um, Mandy is reduced to almost nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, You called her that fairy lady in our original episode. And that infuriated me because she's a great character. Uh, The relationship between Ella and the prince goes from them falling in love over the course of several years in mm-hmm. the book to like insta love that happens yeah, within the span of a yeah. few days. Um, you know, just really this, this very watered down version yeah. of what we get in the book. Like Ella enchanted went so hard trying to chase current trends that it ended up undermining everything that made the book powerful, subversive, and meaningful to little girls who were raised on a steady diet of princesses. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Amanda in the comments said that sh- she was surprised that she thought that was going to be number one. Was Ellie <laughs> Chanted? She, was, she said a horrible movie from an absolutely amazing book. So she was surprised that you, uh, didn't make that number one. We'll get to number one. It has its own reasons for being. Yeah. Um, so are you ready for our dark horse number two, best movie, best adaptation of all times? I think our listeners may have an idea what this could be, but it's our number two. It's the adaptation that nobody would ever expect would make the, the good <laughs> the half, of, half our list. of our list. Uh, but that's right, baby. It's 50 shades of gray. Best number two film adaptation that we've ever done. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> this movie improved on the source material so wildly that it is almost indescribable. It, it truly blew our minds. I mean, we did go on to describe it for like four plus hours. <laughs> for each episode. But yeah. it's it's almost indescribable yes. how much better the movie is than the book. And it's truly one of those things where the book is so bad, it is 
so terrible. Uh, all so three of the books bad. are so terrible. Uh, we're specifically here talking about the first one. Yes. We could have made this another trilogy entry, but the first movie in, in particular, particular yes. is it's so, better than the other so much better than the book and so <laughs> yes. much better than the other two. Yes. Um, like they, there are tons of things that it fixes. It fixes like continuity issues that are constant throughout the books. Uh, it fixes a bunch of timeline issues mm. and change. There were so many times where things needlessly happened like, right on top of each other yeah. and were explicitly stated to happen right on top of each other in a way that you're like, in a way that like made no made sense, made no sense in the, and the movie by just not telling us when things happen, just <laughs> like literally leaving out information, which is yeah. often a problem in movies. But here, here it worked really well. So bad. Yeah. Uh, and it, so they fix a lot of continuity and timeline issues. They also remove just so much extraneous material that oh my is God. not needed. Like, that, or not relevant. That book, the first one, I don't remember how many pages that clocked in at, but it was I was almost 500. It's like four something. They're yeah. long books. It's a nightmare. And the actual plot of the story, yeah. maybe 100 pages. Oh, yeah. Tops. Which, and, and you know, you get, like, it is what it is. It's a yeah. it's a smutty romance novel. Like, we, we get I what mean, we knew what we were getting into. <laughs> but that being said, it's not even like the other unnecessary 400 pages are all, like, romance scenes right. that is not what the rest well, of the it, book is i mean there a, is a it's lot a of smutty that. romance that's not particularly good at being either romance or smut <laughs> yes so make of that what you will yes absolutely um yep, uh, yeah another thing is that the movie really does not take itself too seriously yes oh uh, it really like leans into the silliness that's kind of inherent in the entire concept of yes. Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, the movie or the books take themselves so deadly seriously. Oh my God. They, they, they. I mean, and which is wild for what they are. Which was yeah. starting as, it's, it's wild that a book that started <laughs> as Twilight fan fiction can take itself so seriously, but somehow, uh, what is her name? El, no, El, El James. James. Oh, uh, Erica. somehow she pulled it off. Uh, and those books take themselves so seriously, but the movie and specifically the actors, mm -hmm. but the movie itself, even the direction and writing knows what these movies are. Uh, and they really just, like you said, they, they lean into the silliness of what mm -hmm. we're doing here. They kind of lean in to the, the tongue in cheek nature of what this all is. Uh, Dakota Johnson in specific, in, in specific knows exactly what role she's <laughs> playing and she has so much fun with it in this movie. There's some great moments where that are moments from the book that are just, they make they, you roll your eyes so hard in the book. Yeah, and they're they're taken so deadly seriously, yes. and the like the dialogue is so cheesy, and the narration is so cheesy, but it's taking itself so seriously yeah. that you're reading it and you're like, I don't. What am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> yes, but the movie, and specifically Dakota Johnson, in those scenes, she is also rolling her eyes at the movie. Yeah, you can feel it through the screen, and it <laughs> makes the whole thing just work so much better. Uh, they also soften up. So Christian is the the the, the male protect, protagonist, or whatever. The other the He's male main the character, lead male character. Yes. Uh, and he is a nightmare person oh, in the books, God. like just the worst person ever. Uh, and he's still pretty bad in the movie, but yeah. like way, better. but like way, way, way not as bad yeah. as he is in the books. Yeah, he, they they've softened him up so much to where he doesn't feel like a complete monster, which is nice. Small miracles. Yes, small miracles. <laughs> Another thing that made this movie really great um, is that it mercifully deprived us of Anna's inner monologue. 
Yes, which so, is like arguably whew. the worst thing about the book is that we're in Amazon. Yeah, the, 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 the books are first person narration. Yes. So we're in Anna's perspective the entire time. Yeah. And she's got a lot of thoughts. It's, it was some of the worst written and silliest stuff in the whole series is all of this is like what Anna is thinking. Cause she has she, like these she, characters. She has these characters in her head. She has her subconscious who judges her for being, being into Christian. Yes. And, and then she also has her inner goddess yes. who really wants to get with him and does a merengue. Yes. <laughs> With salsa moves, I believe is the way it's written in the book, which is terrible. And that's that's not even the tip of the iceberg no, of, of what made her perspective so awful to be in. It, it's honestly wild how much more likable yes. Anna is as a character once yes. you aren't privy to every single one of her thoughts. Yes. And it's it's interesting because nine times out of ten removing a character's narration yeah. we think makes the movie worse yeah like we it makes it harder to 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 get you to connect with the character cuz yeah. like obviously generally it's better the movie yeah we don't want like a voiceover right. narration right we don't usually want a voiceover narration but you do lose out on a lot of depth and nuance yeah. when you lose that character's perspective when we covered the hunger games mm-hmm. yeah. we talked a lot about how you know the movies did a really great job but not being inside of Katniss's head you lose something that is really important and integral to the stories yeah but that was not the case here no <laughs> No, not at all. Uh, like the other thing that was crazy is never in the history of cinema has a movie benefited so much from binging the source material immediately before watching the film. Yeah. Because we would just, we would, you know, we would read the whole book in like a couple days and then watch the movie. And it's, it's, it's truly mind blowing how well, because so many times watching the movies, we would pause and go, oh my, that's so much, be-. like literally out <laughs> loud to each other. We would go, that's so much better. Oh, that's so much better than what they did in the book. <laughs> we would have like physical reactions to them. It's, yeah. And the thing of it is, is that Fifty Shades of Grey isn't even that incredible of a movie on its no, own. No, it's not good. Like, it's, it's, a, it's fine. Eh, I would say it's, it's pretty fine. not good. But yeah. it's, it's not awful, but it's not great no, either. No, it's not, it's not even good, I would argue. It's like right on that, like, six out of five, six out of ten-ish. <laughs> but compared to the book? Yes. It's a masterpiece. Oh, it truly It belongs a in a museum. Yes. If I were teaching a screenwriting class... Fifty Shades of Grey would be on the syllabus, full stop. Yes. This is how you do it. Yeah, completely. Completely. All right. It's now time. We're getting to our number one. Before we do, I just want to say, hey, Trevor. Hey, bud. Hi, Trevor. <laughs> some, some of you might remember Trevor as the muggle. Yes, he was the muggle on our Harry, Harry Potter, Potter episodes. Series. Absolutely. Uh, one of the groomsmen in our wedding. So there you go. Thanks for So was Amanda who was here. So, no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I can't. There's too many people in the... <laughs> ignore me all right it's time for our number one worst adaptation of all time percy jackson and the olympians colon the lightning thief go to uh okay so the major issue i sum it all up that i have with this after adaptation is that it is downright disrespectful of the source material 
So when you're reading Percy Jackson, you can see the level of work and research that Rick Reardon clearly put in. But you can tell that the movie obviously does not value that work. Yeah. So, for example, when our heroes visit the underworld in this book slash movie, in the book, it's specifically mentioned that Persephone, queen of the underworld, is not there at that time because the story is set during the summer. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, that makes sense because it's a major part of that story that Persephone only lives in the underworld during fall and winter. Yes. Right? So we have that level of like research and, and care yes. that Rick Reardon, the author, put in right. to crafting this world. Mm-hmm. The movie not only puts her in the underworld, it has her do like a weird bait and switch that really comes out of nowhere and then acknowledges its own error by having her say, the only thing I look forward to is my allotted time away, which is supposed to be right then. Which is right now. It's right now. (laughs) You're not supposed to be here right now. Yeah. (laughs) The Percy Jackson books were, are, Yes, maybe more so. Probably more than in 2010. Um, Incredibly popular, and the studio had the opportunity to have a major hit with a huge franchise because there's a ton of Percy Jackson books. Yeah, but it seemed they seemed to struggle with a fundamental lack of understanding of the source material and its characters. (laughs) Pretty much entirely from what it sounded like, yeah. Yeah. And obviously there are going to be exceptions to this statement, but I have yet to encounter a Percy Jackson fan who thinks this movie is a good adaptation. <laughs> it's wild. I don't know if there are any. I don't know if there are any. And and if your built-in fan base won't get on board, your franchise is dead in the water. Yeah. It's crazy because even some of the worst, like, even, like, so we just did the Diversion series mm-hmm. this summer, which is, according to a lot of people, not a good adaptation. They're not good movies. They're not particularly good books in mm-hmm. our opinion. But they're also just not, they're like mediocre adaptations uh, of mediocre books. But the, uh, there are fans of those movies, like, Mm -hmm. and those, but like, there are people who like both the books and the movies a lot. And there, I think it's, it's not a ton, you know, like there's a lot of people who, who are fans of the books who don't like the movies, but there's, I don't, I'm sure they're out there for Percy Jackson, but it's gotta be like 12 people. (laughs) It's wild to me that they even made a second movie. All of them are here in the audience tonight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, The book of the Percy Jackson and the Olympians also included a scene set in St. Louis. Yes. That the movie moved to Nashville. Yeah. And as native, as native St. Louisans, we just can't get behind that. No, we can't can't support it. Can't do it. But luckily Mm -hmm. there is a new series coming out uh, on Disney plus, right? I think so. Uh, like yeah. soon. I think a trailer just came out recently. So hopefully it's good. We'll see. I don't know. I haven't actually watched the trailer yet. I, I think I think I heard mixed things about the yeah. trailer, like mainly about the CG in the trailer. Because mm. I think Rick Riordan is like pretty involved in this adaptation. That's good because I believe he disowned the movie. Yeah, I'm, I thought I heard that he's pretty involved in this this one that's coming out, but I could be wrong. I don't, I don't remember for sure. All right. But that brings us right to it. The number one best adaptation of all time. The film's so nice. We've done it on this podcast twice. <laughs> it is The Princess Bride. I mean, you know, what, is I, what else could what it, is yeah, there what to is say? There to say? What else could it have possibly been? <laughs> um, well, we could say some things. Yeah, we got um, some things to say. 
So part of what makes The Princess Bride an incredible adaptation is that it's actually functioning as like an additional editing path yes. on the original story from the book. Yeah, because if you don't know, the the film The Princess Bride was written by William Goldman, who is a screenwriter, who is the person who wrote The Princess Bride, the novel. Yeah. <laughs> so he's literally, he was he was a person who wrote both novels and uh, worked in film on screenplays very famously. Uh, I think won an Oscar for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, I think. I think. Uh, and he's done a bunch of other stuff. But um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Princess Bride are probably his two most known movies. Mm-hmm. But uh, well-respected film writer and very well-respected novelist. And so, yeah, he got to take a second crack at his own book, yeah. which was already kind of this weird meta thing. And mm-hmm. then he made it even more meta. It, by... He made it even more meta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he really approached that with the right amount of enthusiasm, right. I think. Absolutely. Um, and even just as a movie on its own, mm-hmm. The Princess Bride is what I would call a perfect storm. Yes. Uh, it was made in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Yeah. Uh, it's a comedy masterclass. It is perfectly, exquisitely cast. Again, um, it's another yeah, one. Like Lord of the, like Lord of the Rings, you know, there's not a single actor that I would swap out no. for somebody else. No, every single role is iconic. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. Um, and the ambiguous, like, Ren Fair, vaguely Europe in the Middle Ages vibe, and then the fact that it occasionally looks like it was shot on the set of a community theater yes. production of Robin Hood. Yes. All just adds to its it, charm. It really does. It's like we talked about in the episode, or at least in the second one, maybe both of them. I can't remember. So if you don't know, we did this as our very first episode yes. ever. And then for our 100th episode, we revisited it. And I read it that time just because we wanted, you know, like a fun little thing. Um, and we talked about in at least one of those episodes that uh, the, particularly the, the, the sword fight scene at the top of the cliffs is insanity. Like mm-hmm. the sky, is, it's so clearly a soundstage. Like it's the most soundstage looking yeah. set you've you ever seen. You can see the soundstage like moving under yes. their feet <laughs> as they're crazy. doing it. But it actually makes the scene better because yeah. it adds to like the storybook nature of yes. kind of like what the book or what the film is doing. It's so good. And, and it also, speaking of that fencing scene, it has some of the best fencing scenes of, of, of all time in movies, in our opinion. So Bob Anderson worked on that film. I think we talked about this in the episode. Yeah, I think we did. Um, uh, Bob Anderson worked on that film. And if his name, if that name is familiar to you, it should be. Uh, He was the sword master on this movie, Princess Bride, The Three Musketeers, which we've also done on the podcast Mm -hmm. from 1993, The Mask of Zorro and The Legend of Zorro. Those are the two with uh, Antonio Banderas from the early 2000s. All three of the Lord of the Rings movies, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. And he's the stunt double for Darth Vader in the original trilogy. The man was a legend. this This is the sword fight man yes if he you, is the you, guy yes he's the guy if you need sword fights in your yes. movie this is the guy i will say there was somebody else who worked with him on princess bride i know for sure i can't remember the guy's name there was two of them mm-hmm. i think who choreographed the, all the fights in princess bride but he's the one who gets all the recognition because he went on <laughs> to have this huge long, big long career but like every single one of my favorite sword fights in movies are pretty much at least somewhat his work because mm-hmm. pirates of the caribbean lord of the rings yeah. this movie all are just incredible. And we talked about in our Three Musketeers movie, you can even see like some of his fencing moves carry over from movie to movie. If you, get, <laughs> if you know Bob Anderson fencing in movies, eventually you can kind of see the stuff that carries over from film to film. But the other thing about this movie, and obviously this is, goes without saying, but it's like maybe the most quotable movie ever made, or at least for some people. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's other ones that get up on a near level, but this yeah. is 
got to be up there. I don't know if there's a way to to quantify and measure that, but <laughs> yeah. if there were, this one would be at the top, if not the top. Yes, I, I again, I can't think of of many that are that are much higher. There are some, but it's it's. I think it like in especially in this realm of like fantasy adventure films, it's mm-hmm. probably number one. There might be like a, some like niche comedies or something that for some people are like you know like yeah. Ghostbusters or something maybe, but other than that, I can't think there's anything else that's even close. Yeah, now, in my opinion, the Princess Bride is the gold standard yeah. of adaptation. It, it really is. The yeah. book is incredible. Yeah, the book's great. Honestly. That's the thing. Yeah, the, the book, book is the also book is amazing. great. Like, if you like this movie, you highly like this recommend movie, reading the book. Highly, highly recommend reading the book. Because it adds a lot more, like, there's more detail and nuance, mm-hmm. or not nuance, but there's more detail, and there it, it fleshes out some characters and fleshes out some storylines and some stuff that is not in the film. But none of that takes, like, that stuff not being in the film doesn't hurt the film at all. No. Like, it's just a little bit of added, you know, fun stuff yeah. in the in the book yeah the movie really takes that source material and improves on it in every way possible yeah uh, from the writing to the production to the actors themselves yes absolutely so that's it that's our list those are our top five we'll post this uh somewhere on social media for our listeners in case you want a a little (laughs) a little visual recap of what our top five best and worst adaptations of all time were Uh, also this episode will eventually release on our podcast feed for everybody we're gonna get the the file from them and uh, release it for all of you probably when we're on our honeymoon yeah probably that's kind of our plan for that Uh, but that's gonna do it i mean let me make sure nobody else has anything to say here before we wrap up um okay amanda says she quotes talladega nights a lot more but Princess Bride is a far superior film. Or sorry, sorry, she didn't say she quoted it a lot more. She said she quotes it a lot, but that Princess Bride is far superior. Uh, Steve said he loves the tongue-in-cheek nature of Princess Bride, especially loves how they trolled us for the sequel, Buttercup's Baby, which uh, we talked about in the episode. Uh. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Matilde did say that uh, they, they will never subject themselves to Fifty Shades books or Please the movies. Please don't. You don't need don't. to. But that our episode on it is maybe one of our best and most fun episodes for them to listen to. So oh, we thank you, Matilda. Thank you, Matilda, uh, and thank you everybody who joined us here in the live chat for this this live, our very first ever live episode of I think. Well, yeah, we've never done a live. We've episode never either. done a live episode. Yeah, so our very first ever live episode on location at CapeCon 2023. Uh, there will be more podcasts, I think, throughout the weekend. If you want to come back to the same page, you can watch. I don't know who. There's a bunch tomorrow and yeah. some more on Sunday. So come back and, and check those out and hear some more people talk about. I'm sure mostly nerdy stuff would be my guess because it isn't a <laughs> Comic-Con. But I don't know exactly what everybody's talking about it. But again, that's going to do it for this year for our CapeCon 2023 special and our very first live show ever. Until next time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.